Warning, this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is the one and only Jerry Hay. Jerry is an amazing player and a genre-defining arranger. During his nearly 50 years in the industry, he has worked with many of the most influential artists of our times. From his Grammy Award-winning work with Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson to his mind-blowing work with Earth, Wind & Fire, Al Jarreau, and David Foster, Jerry continues to set the bar and push the boundaries for trumpet players around the world. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, and welcome to this week's episode of The Trumpet Guru's Hang, and I am so pleased. Today, I have uh, the person that has inspired me and frustrated me to no end, uh, the world-famous Jerry Hay. Jerry, it is my absolute honor to have you on this podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I don't know if I'm worthy of all that, but you know thanks hey hey well you know it's all good so um you're uh you're out there in la but you're originally a midwestern boy right i am from small town in illinois and then went to indiana university and so yeah my my roots are back there yeah i I was born in ohio and i spent a lot of time moving around through that area i live in pennsylvania now so uh i have not had the fortune to uh live in la or in hawaii as you have but uh, one of these days i'll i'll try and get out there both pretty nice places yeah yeah so um you know, it, for the for those of you who are joining the podcast for the first time, uh, this isn't going to be your typical podcast. So don't expect a whole lot of uh, what gear you play and, and how, how do you play so damn high. Although we'll get to some of that, trust me. But this is mostly about getting to know Jerry. And, uh, you know, most people, you know, they know you as, you know, as the guy, you know, the trumpet player, the, the arranger. Um, but there's just so much more to you than that. And that's what that's kind of fascinating, fascinating me. Actually, uh I kind of have uh, a short list of people that I've always wanted to sit down and talk to, and you're on my top five list. Uh, I'm in trouble now. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, and actually, we're going to get to my number one in a minute. That's Quincy. Quincy is the one guy I would just love to sit down and spend an evening just learning about life because, you know. Yep, he's the man. Yeah, he's experienced so much, you know, it's just crazy. There'll never be another one like him to, with the scope of his career. It's, it's frightening. And he is equally as nice a guy. Uh, that's what I've heard from so many people. I, I hope that one day I get the uh, opportunity to, uh, to talk with him. Um, so actually, let's kind of just jump right there. Uh, you know, Quincy was kind of instrumental in, in getting you to that place that, that, that you're at in terms of being the, the go-to arranger in, in L.A., um, I, I know that had to be a little bit frightening considering how tremendously talented he is as an arranger to come in and, and, and do stuff for him. Um, you know, how, how did it feel that first session working with him? Uh, the first session we, um, we had just moved to LA and I mean, literally it had to be three or four months and the phone rang, who knows how he got my phone number but the phone rang and it was Quincy and he asked me to come in 
and play on a session. <laughs> Great, you know, and he's, he says, and I want you to do the arranging too. And, you know, okay, you know, uh, I guess, you know. Yeah. But, you know, we did this t tune on his album called I Heard That, and the name of the song was Midnight Soul Patrol. Not really very much. It's a little instrumental ditty, and the horns are basically the intro, and every time the intro comes around, then we do a little bit on the vamp. Not a lot, but, you know, I got my foot in the door, and he seemed to like what we did, and that was kind of how really my career got started with the arranging part. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, uh, I, that's so interesting because when you think about how many people, you know, trying to make it the business, and I'm sure a lot of people listening or watching on the, on the YouTube channel, um, you know, they want to know how you get in the business and there's certainly a level of skill, you know, that, that you have to have, you got to have the chops, but, uh, there's a level of luck and there's a level of uh, persistence and personality, you know, because if you're if you're a, a, an asshole, nobody wants to work with you after the first gig. Exactly right. Yeah. No. And, you know, you have to be prepared for that. If you get so lucky as to get a phone call from Quincy Jones, you got to be prepared to come in and do it right. Right. Um, so you have to be prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be ready to play. You have to have the chart right and you have to, you know, it all kind of has to come together, you know, meeting Quincy and you have to, yes, you have to go in there with the right attitude. And cause, cause like you said, nobody wants to work with a jerk, you know, yeah. some guy, I don't care how good he is, but you know, you ju I just, you know, later with that, you know, yeah. there's a lot of other guys. Yeah. Well, you've you've worked with so many great people. I mean, both in terms of uh, the people that you've you've been contracted to work with, but uh, even more importantly, that core nucleus of musicians that that you've worked with in, in the horn section. People like Gary Grant and Chuck Finley, and uh, now you're working with Wayne. Uh, obviously, you know other people like uh, Bill Reichenbach, and and uh, you know just just some some amazing people. And they it seems to stay fairly consistent. Um, so what's the secret to being able to keep keep that kind of a core together? Well, we, Gary and I especially, and uh, Larry Williams, the saxophone player, keyboard player in Seawind, and the saxophone player in Seawind, we all went to school at Indiana University. So we've been playing together, not Gary, Gary didn't go to school. And then we went over to Hawaii together. Right. Gary came over to Hawaii. We've been playing together since the early 70s. So it's a really family affair with the horn section. And we all go in there knowing that, you know, that I expect the best from them and they expect to come into the session and, you know, have some challenging music and play it as well as we can play it. And, and everybody put their effort into making a team effort. Mm -hmm. And, like Quincy with his family of Greg Film Gaines and John Robinson and, you know, a few key guys, myself, uh, you know, you get this family going, you know what's going to happen when you get everybody together. And when Gary and Chuck and I play, I know exactly how it's going to sound. And right. it's exactly like I want it to sound. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have to be worried about as me as a player and an arranger, I have enough problems with the, whether the artist 
who's never heard these charts before and we're walking in cold and we're playing whether he likes it, whether the engineer has the right balance or anything. I don't have with Chuck and Gary and Wayne and, you know, a few other guys, I don't have to worry about that at all. You know, right. that's, that, that's taken care of. Bill Reichenbach, Dan Higgins, Larry Williams, all of that, we know how that's going to sound. And we know that that's going to be great. You know, is the engineer, does he have our, the balance right? Is, are the microphones right? You know, does the producer like the charts? There's so much more involved that when you keep this family thing going, that, you know, that takes any part of the pressure of worrying whether the section is going to be good or not out of my, out of my brain. I don't have to deal with that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense that, uh, you know, having everybody be on the same page just takes one level of confusion out of the equation. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know, with your reputation in the business, I mean, obviously you, you kind of have a pick of the litter, you know, so many, so many players would love to work with you, but you know, when you're looking at, you know, if you need to pull somebody new into a session, what are the defining characteristics you're looking for? Uh, well, one, they have to really be able to play and they have to be able to play the style of music that I'm going to be writing. You know, Wayne can play a lot of different styles, you know, so, you know, he had, has no problem coming in and you know, playing with us. Dan Finero, another one that has, has been in on a few sessions. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just more than just the playing because you got, like you said, you got to have somebody in there who's got a right, the right attitude, who really wants to make it better than, better than it should be, really. Gary Grant is the guy for that. He, he comes in. He'll keep playing it till it till he's bleeding, if it's not good enough, you know. Right. And that's and that's really what it takes to make, especially back in the days when it every note had to be played. There's no Pro Tools cutting and pasting and right. all that fixing and all that. You know, we had to bust our ass to to play that stuff right. Okay. And and the physical demands of the trumpet. Yeah, somebody's going to make a mistake. You're going to have to play it again. And yeah. again and again and again. So you got to have somebody in there that's going to want to be able to do that. Yeah. And and you know, hopefully each time get a little better. Yeah. Well, that and that's that, that's so amazing because you know, when you, like when you're saying about the old days, you know, before Pro Tools. I mean, I remember you know being in the studio and and you know getting the razor blade and the whole nine yards cutting cutting the tape. But the fact that you know the the sound that you guys got. Uh, during that period, the intonation, uh, I mean, just everything about it was just so spot on and it had that realness to it, uh, but was just so freaking accurate uh, as opposed to, you know, today Pro Tools makes it really great to do stuff, but but sometimes, you know, you lose the, the human nature of it. And I think that's what I loved about you guys, the sound so much. Well, we try these days, I mean, we still try to keep that. Uh, yes, and, and Pro Tools does make it easier and you don't have to necessarily play stuff a hundred times again, you know. Uh, my son is uh, an engineer and works for Harvey Mason Jr. now. Okay. And, they, and they're doing a lot of stuff. And if I have a choice, 
he's the guy that I want to have engineer because he's heard, obviously he's heard my stuff his whole life. He's got an unbelievable music memory. Uh, here's something a couple times that can sing it back to you. And, you know, in giant step solo, Freddie Hubbard, Clifford, everybody, and crazy guitar solos and stupid like punk stuff. And it's just amazing. Uh-huh. Then in addition to that, he's got Pro Tools Melodyne skills that are second to none, really. Awesome. So we go in and he's got, he has my mics. He's got them set up. He knows how I like to record. I mean, literally we go in and a chart that used to take us two hours is now 15 minutes. Oh, that's amazing. It, it's great. You know, there's no, you know, let me hear trumpet one balance. You know, let me hear, oh, look. You know, and then I, you know, you go in, and I, I used to have to, well, you know, the trombone's way too loud, or the, you know, the saxophone's not loud enough, or some, you know, none of that. It's boom, let's let's start recording, and boom, and we're done in 15 minutes. Mm. So there's a plus to that, but yeah. and I try not to let him make it too perfect because he he could. Um, yeah. It on something like the Dirty Loops record, which we did. Mm -hmm. uh, very involved and every note of theirs is perfectly on the grid. So when we play something and it was a, a, like a you know, last 16th note of a bar say, yeah, and it would be something that normally would be, yeah, that's great. When you're going up against a perfect last 16th note. Right. It flams. So on Dirty Loops, he had to help us more with that in the Pro Tools thing, just, just because they were so perfect. Right. That, that when we weren't perfect, it really felt bad. Uh -huh. So there, there was that instance. Yeah. But, yeah. but usually, we, you know, we try to keep it loose. We try to keep the... the the performance there and yes you know we cut and paste and do all of that stuff but it's still try to keep the performance whenever possible yeah awesome now, i remember um reading a quote i guess you, you originally heard this from bruce Swedine about uh a whisper is a, a whisper you know if you turn it up it's still a whisper if, yeah, if it's a shout and you turn it down it's still a shout um that level of intensity that, that uh, you've always brought to the table uh is that uh, do you feel like that's kind of like the core of of what makes the jerry hay horn sound uh it's part of it uh yeah when we go in it's it's pretty much you know, you couldn't play a big band session, you know, a three or four hour gig at the level of intensity that we play mm -hmm. on, a, on a session, you know, because we can stop, take a break, you know. Right. Um, so that is part of it. Part of it's a microphone. Part of it's the arranging. A big part of it. The main part of it, I'd say, is the players. You know, it, it's... It's the guys that have that core sound uh, that that I like the way that records. I mean, Gary records well. Chuck Finley, you stand next to Chuck Finley, and it's like, okay, well, you know, that sounds good, but you know, it's, it's not very loud. And you go in, 
and you listen to it and you can't hear yourself. All you hear is stuff, Timmy. Uh, he's got yeah. that real serious core to his sound. Right. Uh, and then with Bill Reichenbach in the section, he has the like the full core of sound of, of trombone. So I basically consider him like the the foundation of of the trumpet section because with him there, we sound bigger because mm -hmm. he's got such a big sound. Right. You know, and yeah. Charlie Loper, the same thing. He has a great sound. Guy Lou McCurry, he was an, another amazing trombone player. Lots of really great players, but Bill seems to have that just full, round, rich sound that makes us sound better. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sound was is, is definitely one of a kind. So, uh, you know, it, over, over the years, you know, when, when you've been, uh, you know, improving yourself, developing yourself, I, you've done so much. Um, and I, I'm first of all, I ask you, I uh, do you ever sit back and, and think, you know, wow, I've made, you know, this huge contribution or this this amount of impact to uh, the world of music? I mean, does that ever cross your mind? You know what you've been able to do? Uh, you know, recently with all of social media and stuff, and I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people and you know, I've been doing a couple interviews in South America recently. And, you know, I, I'm sort of getting that, you know, I've had some impact in the music business. Um, but, you know, I don't really sit back and think about other than, you know, some, every once in a while, somebody will post a tune or something. And go, oh, man, that's it's too hard. First of all, you know, who wrote that, you know, all of that, <laughs> who are those guys, but no, it's, it's been great. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way, you know, meet Quincy and David Foster and Earth, Wind and Fire and Maurice White and, you know, all those people. It's just, it's been great. Yeah. What was your, or have you had uh, one of those oh shit moments? Like, I can't believe I'm working with this person. Uh, well, when you start with Quincy, I mean, that was, <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know, he was kind of my first big thing. Um, so, you know, after that, everything is kind of, if it reaches Quincy's level, you know, it's yeah. pretty good. You yeah. know, uh, working with David Foster is always great. Um, Maurice White, Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, really really great. We did with Quincy, we did a couple Frank Sinatra tunes live. Uh, and that was, it was good, but it was less um, kind of inspirational than I was hoping. You know, he was kind of, he wasn't great to the band and he came in and it was just, it felt a little uh, constricted when he walked in the door. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, still one of those moments that you know, I was lucky to work with him. Yeah. Is there any, uh, any artists that, that you kind of wish that you had had the opportunity to work with that you, you know, you just haven't been able to, to get your stars aligned? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, let's see, right off the bat. I mean, maybe Steely Dan, maybe, um, you know, Tom Scott did a lot of those which, and they were great. Uh, I can't really think of any 
you know, I'm, I'm sure there are lots that I just not think. Yeah. 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 I didn't know if you had like a, a wish list, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, you have, uh, yeah, because you've done so much, you, you know, you, you've worked with so many different people. Um, do you ever find yourself like lacking for motivation? Uh, and, and if you do, what, what's your, what's your go-to source for, for inspiration? Uh, lack of motivation. No, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty self-motivated in that, you know, pretty disciplined, um, you know, playing trumpet, practicing every day and, and doing all that. And, and the arranging part, I still try to, you know, add a little twist to something I do and try to make it okay. Has, you know, I haven't, I haven't done that before. Let's try that. You know, I still, I still try to do a little bit and, and make something special out of, out of something that we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you, uh, you obviously were a student at uh, Indiana State. You studied with uh, Mr. Adams. Uh, Indiana University. Or Indiana University, excuse me. I, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about Ohio State. That's where I went. Oh, yeah, no, so. don't think about Ohio State. No. <laughs> come on, come on, Jerry. with that. <laughs> come on, man. At least we love, we both love the Lakers, okay? So we'll, we'll okay, that's that. good. Okay, we'll stick with that. We're not going to ask you about that in a minute. Uh, but, uh, you know, Mr. Adam had uh, a, almost a mythical stature uh, in in terms of the the world of, of trumpet and trumpet pedagogy, and uh, you know from what I've heard from the people that have studied with him, um, that he was just as impactful to them in terms of uh, the life lessons that he taught as it was the the trumpet lessons that he taught. So, uh, you know, what what are your have been your biggest takeaways from your your time with him? Yeah, he he was. You know, the, the mythical statue that you say was he deserved every bit of that and more. Um, greatest person I've met in life. Uh, nothing to do with a trumpet. He just, he was just such an amazing person. You know, tr- again, uh, along with Quincy, treats everybody with respect. Uh, just great attitude. Uh, and And then on top of that, a hell of a trumpet teacher. Uh, he, uh, I just can't, I, I can never say too much about him and, you know, probably the biggest influence in my life. Yeah. Well, you know, like we were discussing uh, off camera before we got started, uh, so much about of what this podcast is about is helping people to understand uh, the person behind the horn. And, um, you know, it's been my experience with in music and, and the other things I've done in my life that, you know, your character shows through in everything you do. And, um, you know, the, those, those levels of impact that you make, it, if you can reach someone beyond a skill and, and help them to uh, become a better person, I think that that's where we're making our best contributions to the world. And, um, you know, you have a, certainly a reputation of, of, you know, being a you know, a, a great guy as well as, uh, you know, a, a great player and a great arranger. You know, I've, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be friends with people like Wayne and uh, Mike Chickowitz, who's, you know, known you for, for a good bit of time. And, you know, it's like the people that I know that work with you have just all been like, yeah, Jerry's a great guy. And, um, you know, it's, it's nice to see that you're carrying on the tradition of your teacher in that way. You know, you're a hell of a player and a hell of a guy. So, 
and, and everybody that has ever taken from him is that same kind of person. You know, he had that much impact on everybody, nothing to do with trumpet, you know, and there are guys that didn't do trumpet as that just didn't make it as trumpet players that, you know, went on to other things in life. And they still say he has the most influence on their life. You know, it, so, you know, it's not just about trumpet with him. And, yeah. and fortunately, he's a, you know, he, he's <laughs> taught so many great players, you know, it, it's, it was incredible. Yeah. So, so, I mean, if you think about that, you know, kind of taking it the, the next step, um, yeah, obviously, as a trumpet player and as a ranger, you've, you've created this, you know, a, a, a tremendous impact on the world of music. But, you know, if you had to stop and think about it, um, what is the real impact that you want to leave in the world? I mean, besides your discography, I mean, what, what do you want people to look back and say, yeah, this is who Jerry Hay was and this is what he was all about and this is what he contributed? Um, you know, but treating everybody with respect is one thing you know, being a good person, good father, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a good trumpet player and, you know, and arranging is just kind of, that's just kind of a sidelight for me, really. It, it, fortunately, it allowed us to play on all of these great albums that we did because without the arranging, who knows, there, there could have been somebody else playing on those records. Right. So, you know, uh, that that's it's part of it but but not as big a part of it as as i'd like it to be although mm -hmm. you know still I, I listen to the stuff and go okay you know here's what we did you know what do you got yeah yeah that's awesome that's awesome um when um like when you think about uh your your time that you you know you spent spent playing especially like working with quincy um there has been a lot of uh, yeah, there's been a lot of changes in music, you know, since the time that you started uh, in in the industry. Uh, let alone the time you spent with Sea Wind, but uh, you know, once you started into the LA scene more, um, where do you see music going in the future? Uh, you know, do you, do you see any any new voices that that are coming up? Because you guys had a very unique approach, your sound, your uh, your energy. Uh, you know, the, the ranging, everything was, was, was very kind of groundbreaking in a way. So, um, you know, but everybody's been copying that. So who's the next person? I don't want to say the next Jerry Hay, but who's the next person that, that you see coming up? That's like, yeah, they've got a really unique voice and, uh, they've got a lot of greatness destined for them. Uh, wow. That the, there's a, a guy in England that the, the trumpet players in England seem to be, it seems to be that this gen, younger generation of trumpet players in England that they have over there is really great. A whole bunch of really great guys over there now. Yeah. Um, and one of them, Tom Walsh, mm -hmm. is also doing some arranging and some killing arranging. Uh, really good. I mean, it is in... He's a fan of mine. It's in my style, but it, it's really uh, good stuff. Uh, so, 
you know, I always, I mean, I kind of shoot to that. He's a great trumpet player. Uh, he has, I gave him, I lend him uh, my trumpet that I played in Sea Wind and on Off the Wall. He has that trumpet now. Ah. Um, and he's been over to our, my house a few times. He played on a, the Giroux tribute album. You know, he flew over here and uh, played with Chuck and Gary on that. Mm. And uh, I mean, just sounds the living end. And I told him, I, I said, I'm sorry that I didn't, that Mr. Adam did, couldn't hear you play. He's that good. Uh, it's just, yeah. So he's a really great player and he's got the arranging thing down. So, you know, there's a po possibility for him there. Yeah. Um, and I'm not up on a lot of the younger guys arranging kind of guys. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really know. Yeah. Anybody other than him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I got turned on to him thanks to your, uh, your Facebook page and uh, I immediately reached out to him. So uh, he'll be showing up on one of these episodes in the near future. So uh, Did you hear that recent Nate Williams. Track? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. That was nuts. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. some great arranging, great track by Nate. Uh, really good stuff. So yeah. that's, you know, it's, it's, it's in the style of me, but he's got his own little twist on it, and he can play the hell out of the trumpet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was listening to it, and just uh, uh, I just wanted to, to run over and slap him. It was so good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, so I, I want to go back uh, a little bit with, with Quincy. Um, you know, Quincy has lived through so much in terms of the evolution of music and and then our, you know, because music is so tied to our culture, um, he's seen and experienced so much. And um, what are the, well, like some of the, the big takeaways that you've gotten from, from him, like some words of wisdom or some, some guidance, you know, some things you might be able to point to and say, yeah, this, this is kind of like a, a turning point in the way I approached uh, music or approached life. Well, as with Mr. Adam, he treats everybody like you want to be treated. Uh, you walk in the door and, you know, he greets you like you're you know, a long lost brother. Um, treats everybody like that. Janitor, people getting the coffee, the second engineers, you name it. So that's a big part of why Quincy's music has got that kind of vibe to it you go into the studio you have a great time it yeah, there's a lot of laughs it's always great music and he somehow gets the best out of you out of all the best people that he hires you feel like you have to you know live up to Quincy and it, it, it's just it kind of snowballs into this amazing piece of music and yeah. and he doesn't necessarily really say a lot musically wise uh but you know a little word here or there or you know a suggestion of something all of a sudden you know it goes from just sounding kind of like a regular record to a, well now it sounds like a quincy jones record what yeah i it's i mean a lot of people everybody says it how does it what happens that when 
Quincy comes in and walks out the door, the whole process has changed and he made everything so much better. It's crazy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's like we've been kind of alluding to all during this conversation. It's kind of like almost like the power of personality, you know? Yeah. So that that's amazing. Um, I know that, uh, you know, we you have gone through some health issues um, and I, I know I've uh, I'm, I'm personally I'm a cancer survivor. And, and for me, it was kind of a pivotal moment in my life where I can. Yeah, I had to face my own mortality. I had to make some adjustments in the way uh, I live my life and the things that I, I could and couldn't do. Uh, but it, it really opened me up to the importance of living each moment, you know, to its fullest. Um, so uh, how, how did your health concerns uh, affect you? How did it affect you in terms of your music and just your life in general? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had uh, lymphoma in 2009, had five chemo treatments, and which, which weren't terrible, I will have to say. Uh, they were, I could deal with them uh, and kept on going and we, you know, and I was still working and stuff. And then after that, they thought they got it. And uh, in 2014, I got another lump and it was an aggressive form of lymphoma and I had to go down to San Diego to, there were only three doctors in the country that deal with what I had. And I had to go down to San Diego and I had a bone marrow transplant. Mm. And that was in 2015. And it took, we lived in San Diego then because, you know, you're going back and forth to the hospital right. daily, basically. Right. Uh, we lived in San Diego for six months and uh, we came home and when we got back home, I got kind of back on a little bit of a routine and I've always been kind of into exercising and, you know, I was really into running. Um, but you know, I, that the bone marrow transplant, the steroids that I had to take kind of messed with my hip so that I can't have impact on my hip because mm -hmm. it ruined the cartilage. So I can't run anymore, but I go to the gym a lot every day when the gym is open. No, not, unfortunately not now, but, right. uh, but you know, work wise, you know, I, I, I did, um, a Dave Matthews band record or Sean Ross, uh, who is a good friend and a hell of a player and yeah. great guy. He talked me into doing some arranging and he actually came down to San Diego to the apartment we were staying in. And, uh, we worked on some arrangements together and I did, that was the first thing that I did when we came back here after six months, uh, down in San Diego was Dave Matthews. And then from that point on, I just kind of went back into regular routine. Anybody wants me to do any arranging, you know, no problem. I haven't been playing for, I don't know, 
10 years now at least. And, you know, that's, I miss that, but, you know, time marches on. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, t- today things are great. I'm, I had a checkup last Friday. Everything is 100%. So oh, that's, that's, you know, that's I can't awesome. ask for anything more. Yeah. But yeah. it does make you take a look at, you know, where you are and how much longer you have around and, you know, family and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, like I said, it, you know, it, it helped me to just, uh, yeah, I always tried to, I always thought I was a pretty good person. And I thought I enjoyed life pretty much, but uh, it just, you know, puts everything into perspective, you know, clarifies things, solidifies some things. Uh, and, um, you know, finding the, the, the joy in the small things. And I know that uh, you have a couple things that bring you joy, one of which I am uh, enjoying right now. I'm having a nice little glass of uh, red wine here. Uh, I have nowhere. I am nowhere near the uh, master of wine that you are. You under, I understand you have a quite prodigious uh, collection of of wines. I was going to get a bottle of of uh, Chateau Neuf de Pop, which is one of my favorite French wines, but uh, uh, my budget wouldn't afford it right now. <laughs> so, how did you get started in in uh, in wine, and and what is it that you find so fascinating about it? Uh. When we moved to L.A., it wasn't, basically wasn't drinking at all. And I started working uh, with a jingle composer named Don Pystrup, who just a fantastic guy, a great writer in any style, every style. Uh, and he was kind of the busiest guy in town. Uh, so I started working with him. And he happens to have an 8,000 bottle collection. He started, he started collecting in the early 60s. So wine back then, you could buy, you know, top quality wine, like, you know, 61 Lafitte Rothschild or Mouton Rothschild for, you know, $5 kind of, uh, you know, I mean, you know, even back then $5 was cheap. Yeah. Um, So, on these sessions, he'd have a 10 o'clock session and a jingle's an hour long. So you go to the 10 o'clock session and if you didn't have anything maybe until that night, you hang out there and he'll bring down two cases of like great wine uh-huh. and just sit there and just try wine all day long. You know, it was incredible. I mean, the, the, the tasting experience Besides the musical experience with him was incredible. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was really where I started with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he bought me, made me buy my first big case of wine, which was a 1978 Domaine de la Romani Conti assorted case, which back then cost me a thousand dollars. And a thousand dollars to me then was like, you you're kidding. I'm not right. spending that much money. Well, that case now, if I still had that case, and I still have a couple bottles from that case, that case is probably worth 150000 now. Oi. Yeah, it's, it's stupid. It's stupid. Uh, so you, I got all this tasting experience through him. And then, you know, he, he made me buy this case. And then he had some connections 
of uh, from from some wholesaler guys. So we started buying wine wholesale, and I made some really good buys wholesale early on. Then, so wine that you know, wine that would hit the stores for three hundred dollars, I could get for like ninety. Mm, yeah, you know, stuff like that. So right. so back in the eighties, I bought a lot of really great wine at wholesale. So that's how, that's really where it all started. Yeah. Where's your collection at these days? Um, I have a little cellar across the hall here. I don't know if you can. I can kind of see that. Okay, let me. Uh... Uh-oh, we're getting a tour. Ah. Little bit there. A little bit there. Um, so that's about, that can hold about 300 bottles, I guess. Uh huh. Um, and then I have some storage, a professional storage situation that that I've had since really since 1978 mm -hmm. uh, in in uh, San Fernando Valley, and I have about oh, it's winding down a little bit now. I probably have two thousand bottles there of mm -hmm. of kind of pretty great stuff. Well, uh, when we get done with this call, you can give me the location and the security code, and I'll I'll keep it safe for you. <laughs> uh, well, I know what. Uh, so, if we think about like with wine, just like with trumpet, you know, it, there's uh, it helps to have a good mentor. It has a good it helps to have a, a good place to start. And you tell us about your first mentor, but. Um, yeah, I, I'm lucky. My my wife, uh, her best friend, uh, my wife's from, from Romania, and her best friend who still lives over there is uh, actually has her PhD in wine and winemaking. And uh, so she's been trying to educate me on uh, the nuances of wine. Um, but for somebody who's not lucky enough to have an expert at their disposal, what's, what's a good place for someone to start uh, if they want to learn about uh, about wine and and uh, how how to go about tasting and what to look for well it, it's it is really a lifelong challenge to find that you know they call it the holy grail of the you know the perfect wine um and there's no other better way than tasting and you know you may love a wine that i hate you know, it's happened a lot of times with, the, you know, dinners that I go out with, you know, guys and they'll bring something and I pick a sip of it one time and it's a hundred point rated wine by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't even drink this. It's just like, you know, way too much of everything. And, and then I, the wine that I brought, he doesn't like. So, you know, it's, it's, you have to sort of, by trial and error, just find out what you like and where, where you're, if you like Cabernet, if you like Pinot Noir, if you like Italian wines, Spanish wines, or, you know, some great Mal Malbecs now coming from all over. Right. Uh, so it, it is really a trial and error. And I've done a lot of reading. I've been, you know, taking every, Burgundy is my, really my favorite area. And mm -hmm. you know, I've been subscribing to all, you know, as many different things about Burgundy and buying books and reading books and looking at podcast, listening to podcasts and zoom things now are coming on. And 
so it's still you know it's uh it's a a lifelong education basically yeah that's cool yeah my my wife's family uh, her her family still lives over there um her father and her uncle have a vineyard uh and uh, they grow malbec uh, not Malbec Merlot. They grow Merlot there, uh, and uh, yeah. I, when I was over there uh, last year, it was just, or two years ago, I guess it was. Uh, it was amazing to just have fresh. I mean, not like super vintage stuff, but just having like a fresh, clean wine that was grown and made right there, and yeah, there was just nothing like it. So, yeah. Yeah, so I, I want to learn more myself. So I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, like just with trumpet. You know, you have to do a lot of practicing your scales with this. I've got to you know, got to do a lot of you know practicing. <laughs> That's kind of good practicing, though. Yeah, well, you balance it. You know, it's it not great. hurt quite as much. <laughs> there you go. Good point. Um, so another thing that I know that you enjoy outside of the world of trumpet is the world of hoops. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you're, you're a Lakers fan. I have been a Lakers fan since the, probably the early seventies when I started getting interested in sports a little bit more. Um, and, uh, I, I kind of took a detour during the, the Jordan Bulls years. I mean, uh, who, who didn't, uh, except for maybe you, but, uh, you know, what is it about basketball that you like so much? I mean, what, what draws you to it? Uh, in uh, Illinois was a big is a big basketball state, right? Uh, and I played basketball. I was too short and not very good um, in high school. And but our high school team was uh, my junior year was made up of these guys that had gone to a Catholic grade school together, and they had like a, I don't know, 40 or 50 game season in grade school. So these guys were playing together and the tallest guy was six one on that team. And uh, they only lost two games that year. And they lost twice to the same team who finished second in the state that year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's back then it's like, you know, if your high school is 100 versus a high school of, you know, 3,000, they all play in the same state tournament. So, right. so that really got me wrapped up in kind of starting in basketball then. And then I went to Indiana, although I wasn't really into basketball then, and Indiana had, didn't have a very good team then. Um, but as you were, I kind of got into the Lakers – were shown in Hawaii. Uh, and so, you know, a 7.30 game would be shown at 4.30 in the afternoon. Over there. Mm, okay. So, you know, we could, I could see a lot of those games. Uh, they, they all weren't shown, but, you know, we got a f quite a few, and they were right. all on the radio, mm -hmm. uh, as were the Dodgers, and I'm a big Dodger fan too. Uh, but then we moved here. Magic comes. The Magic Bird NCAA championship was like, you know, the, the ultimate for me. Right. Um, you know, but, and, and Magic came here and that was kind of it. 
you know, it, he kind of sucked me in. Lakers were good for a long time. And then the Bulls came along and the Lakers sucked. They were horrible during the Bulls years. Yeah. Um, Magic Worthy left. They didn't really get anybody until they got Shaq, you know, and then Kobe. And then they're, you know, great again for yeah. a while. So, but yes, I, I have, especially during the Magic years, I would watch the game live, record it, watch it the next day, and maybe just like piecemeal it again. I just couldn't get enough. Yeah. You have season tickets? No, I didn't. I shared some season tickets with some people. Um, especially back then, as much as I was working, I couldn't really right do that yeah and uh so no i didn't i i had oh i don't know the one year i think i had 14 games or something <clears throat> for a couple of years that yeah. i shared some tickets um but you know i have some friends that have that have season tickets that i've gotten tickets from them and and then bought some on you know on the side yeah so what's your favorite era? Well, I've, uh, they've been showing a bunch of old stuff lately. Yeah. Uh, Magic was pretty amazing. I, I think if I had a team to start a team, it would be hard not to pick for me to not to pick Magic as my first pick. Um, Shaq and Kobe, nobody, period, could ever stop Shaq. To, still to this day, uh, they they showed the two thousand one, two thousand and two thousand one games over the last few weeks here, and it's pretty frightening, you know, with Ori and Brian Shaw yeah. and Ron Harper and Rick Fox yeah. and yeah, that was a hell of a team. I I'd, I'd put that team up against anybody. I think. Yeah. Yeah, that that was, that's that's a hard one there because you know the Showtime Lakers. There's just something about them, um, and uh, then obviously the the Kobe Shaq years were were, were tremendous, and then the uh, the post Shaq years. You know the, the Kobe's time there. Those it, it's just hard to choose, but uh, you know I think for dominance standpoint, physically, yeah, you, it's the Shaq the, the Shaq Kobe combination. That's just. It was just nuts, but uh, there's something about Showtime. I, I, to me, there is a, there's a little bit more cohesion in terms of the, the way the team played. Uh, yes, agree, hundred percent. Yeah, so I mean, it's almost like you know, with a section, you know, yeah, you could have you could have two really great guys like you know, having Shaq and Kobe, and the rest of them are are, are you know, yeah, they're good, but but they're not they're they're not at, at quite at that caliber, but with uh, the Showtime team, they were just everybody just was so solid in their their approach to the game. Everybody knew their place and and they did their job and they did it well. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And it's still, I mean, you look at you look at those games and they're taking it up as fast then as any team takes it up now. You know, like Golden State you know, Curry and those guys that the Showtime Lakers are, are down the court in a couple seconds, you know, Rambus would take the ball, 
I don't care who made it, who re- took the rebound, the grandma take the ball out of bounds, and they'd be half court before you could turn around. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, those are those are great Some times. Good times. Oh yeah, yeah yeah, I, I love that. Um, so let's, let's hop back to trumpet for a second. I'm sure people are like, come on, please, let's talk some trumpet, guys. Uh, I, I know a lot of people are gearheads. I'm a bit of a gearhead, but, um, you know, I know that, that the equipment is just, uh, it's just the amplifier uh, for, for your sound. You know, like uh, like Mr. Adam uh, talked about, you know, the sound is, is you know, here and, and here, you know, it's what you think and what you feel that's coming out. But the instrument, obviously, the, the better the quality, the, the easier it is. To, to manifest the sound. So um, what's your, what's your go-to setup these days? Uh, so Mr. Adam is a Bach guy, um, kind of period Bach guy. So, you know, I started with him. I was playing a Shoki before. C, I was playing Shoki C trumpet mm-hmm. when I went to Indiana and then switched, he switched me to Bach. I played Bach for a long time. And then we moved here and Chuck Finley was playing Colicchio. Mm-hmm. And he had a great Colicchio. So Gary and I got Colicchios and we played Colicchios for a while. And then we eventually switched back to Bach. Uh, I like Colicchio sound. Bach seems to have a little fuller sound to me. It's got um more a, a little richer sound than the clickio clickio's a little more intense um but both good trumpets but you know for me a bach trumpet 37 and a 3c mouthpiece and that's you know that's it yeah yeah i you're using the sterling silver bell for a while you were are you still playing on I, I did i did for a while um, it was a really free blowing horn, heavy. Uh, but we did, you know, we did that Sterling silver ad thing, right? Charlie Davis and Gary and Larry and me. So, you know, we got these new horns. So I played that for a while, uh, but then went back to the horn, that, well, the sea wind horn, the horn that Tom Walsh has now. I went mm-hmm. back to that horn, which is a horn that Mr. Adam and Charlie went up to the factory and picked out for me. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah. So that was, it was a kind of a decision between two horns for the two of them. And I think Mr. Adam picked one and then I got the other one. Oh, nice. Yeah. One of the things I, I, I just love your playing to begin with, but one of the things that I really love is the sound that you get uh, personally and in the section with flugelhorns. I think it's just the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, what, what's your flugel setup like? Um, well, back then it was a Queen on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Reichenbach had a great Queen on flugelhorn for some reason. Uh, and I said, okay, well, I'm taking that. So I had a Yamaha flugelhorn when we, when I was over in Hawaii and over here, Chuck had a queen on. So, uh, you know, we were trying to get that matched sound balance and, you know, back to that again. So Chuck had 
you know, I had a queen on. So uh, Bill had this queen on flugelhorn that I still have to this day. A queen on, queen on, and I think it's a. I don't even know what the mouthpiece is. Might be, but it's like a Bach three rim. Right. I, I, but I don't know what the. I don't. I don't think it's a Bach mouthpiece. I don't know. It might be a Shoki mouthpiece even, or maybe no. It might be a Yamaha mouthpiece. I don't know. But then uh, when we did the Barbara Streisand stuff in a uh, concert in Vegas in 2000, uh, Gary called the Bach factory and we got uh, trumpets and flugelhorns from the Bach factory. <clears throat> and, that, and the Bach flugel is a pretty nice flugel. And that is with a Bach 3C flugel mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. So kind of between those. Yeah. But most, but most of the stuff, most of the recording stuff is a queen on. Mm -hmm. but intonation's not very good on it, but the sound is great. Yeah. Uh, were you using the Yamaha or the uh, Bach when you were recording with Sea Wind? Uh, queen on. Yeah, I remember that one of the first solos I ever tried to transcribe was your uh, solo off of uh, I think it was Enchanted Dance. So. <laughs> It's like, oh man, just the, the, the sound was just, it was like butter. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, when, when you think about like, you know, you've been, you've been into, at this game for a few years, <laughs> a few years. Um, and I mean, I know you, you've had, you've had some, some success, uh, you know, that, that has been not just critically acclaimed success, like your Grammy awards, but, you know, also some financial success related to that as well. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you, you're at a point where you don't particularly have to work as much as you do. Um, but you know, what keeps you working? I mean, why, why are you still doing this? Um, I'm turning stuff down now that, I don't really either care to do because of the music part of it or the people part of it. I don't want to work with that guy. I, you know, I don't really care. So yeah, I, there, you know, the, the financial part has been good, but it, it's not that I didn't work at it, making good, making it good. Right. We, right. we, uh, we're careful early on uh, with, you know, the spending money. We, we, and fortunately we got into the housing market in LA at a really good time when, when things were kind of doubling every couple of years. So we bought a really small house and sold that in a couple of years and bought another house and sold that in a couple of years and bought another house, sold that in 10 years and, you know, we made a little profit on each one of those. And without that, there's no way that I could be living where I'm living now, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of how much I worked. You know, it's just it's bit too expensive here had mm -hmm. I not been into the housing market early. Right. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not just from the trumpet mm -hmm. that, that I, you know, I'm living here. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess it, it's uh, you're now in a position where you can be a little bit more judicious about what you do and you don't do and, and a certain level of freedom uh, to do that. So, I mean, it's obvious that you still love what you're doing. Uh, no question. I mean, there's nothing better than going in 
with your friends to a horn set, horn date, having my son engineer it, and you know, everybody having a good time, and we, you know, we just play a killer tune, and it's like 20 minutes, and then hang out for an hour. Yeah, yeah. I, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, yeah. It's like like they say, you know, if you if you, if you do what you love, uh, then you're never really working a day in your life. So. Yeah, it not not that it's not work, not that you're not working your butt off. You're you're you know you're 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 putting it in, but uh, yeah, you just love the process and you love the people, and that's so important. Yeah, um, yeah. Obviously, you know, uh, Mr. Adams, huge influence on you. Uh, Quincy, a big influence on you. Are there any other musicians that, uh, in terms of either you know trumpet or compositionally uh, musicality that you look to and say, yeah, that, that person had a, has had a huge impact on, on the way I approach things. Uh, going back to the guy who started me on wine, Don Pystrup. Uh, I mean, he could really write every style in 30 second jingle. He would have an intro. He would have a tune. He'd have a little bridge. He'd have an ending 30 seconds. Boom. And, and it would be a complete statement from him. And you could look at his scores and he was a, a, a serious study of scores of Ravel, Debussy, mainly Stravinsky. And he even named his son, uh, his son's, one of his son's middle name is Igor. Uh, and really knew how to write for every instrument. I mean, you know, harp pedalings, guitar parts. He'd write out the guitar part, knows everything. Um, and so I would, I did, you know, so where you go, you play this hour jingle and then you're hanging out drinking his great wine <laughs> and I'm looking at his scores and it's a big orchestra score when he would write these things. Right. You know, and you could look at the violin part and the bass part, violin one and the bass part, and as in Bach, they would be, you, there would be a tune there, be just between those two. Or you could, you know, you could look at the, you know, the second clarinet part and the French horn part. And I mean, you could really see what this guy was doing and how much he knew. And as I said, in every style, he's got two tunes on the best of the Buddy Rich album. Uh, New Blues, if you know that. Yeah, yeah. That's Don Pystrup. Okay. Uh, so he has a big band book. Mm -hmm. And he can write like John Williams. He can write like Fellini. He had he had some jingles where he brought in Hubert Laws and Freddie Hubbard. Uh, plan. Uh, it, it was really scary. And anybody who ever worked for him say, one, the guy was a brilliant writer, and two, he was a great guy. Wow. Uh. He was a great guy. He's still alive. Oh. Uh, so I would say he's one. Um, wow. And Marty Page, mm, David okay. Page's father, mm -hmm. who was a great arranger. Great yeah. guy. We did a George Benson record. And... Uh, he wrote a chart on Moody's Mood for Love. And I had a couple little bitty things of, you know, my little pop string writing. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which, you know, I, I can get by, but it's not great. Uh, and so, so he did this Moody's Mood for Love, and it was just like magnificent. And then I come up and do my little do, you know, <laughs> stupid pop string stuff. You know, yeah. it's like, oh man, how can you follow that? You know, so you know, I'm talking to him, and we're talking about, it, and he said, well, you know, why don't you come to some sessions that I'm on? You know, you can look at the score. So I did do that with Marty on a couple, of, and he gave me his scores, and I'm looking at the scores and you know, listening to him rehearse, no violins. Let me rehearse the violas and cellos and basses. And it sounded like a whole orchestra playing. And then he added the violins. Incredible. And, you know, and a brilliant arranger, he could arrange for horns and, and the whole works, you know. Yeah. So I did a, a little bit with him. Mm -hmm. um, and then David Foster, who really didn't, wasn't a string writer uh, or or really a, a horn arranger or anything but a, an unbelievable musician right. so we did we did some horn and string stuff together that you know so i kind of learned via him a little bit right from that yeah. you know and he learned from me as well mm -hmm. the horn parts yeah so. yeah i mean it, it's just so interesting to me to it's obvious first of all that that you have um a desire to learn to absorb and to to improve yourself and i think sometimes it's very hard for people uh particularly when they're you know in the upper echelons of their of, of their specific endeavors to still keep that knowledge that thirst to grow themselves and being in that environment particularly at that time in LA, I mean, you were certainly surrounded by some of some of the greats of all time, and you know, it's it's just apparent to me, and I, I I'm you know giving you all due respect on this that you know it's very easy to go in and say, well, you know, I don't need to learn from you, but you know that ability to to be humble and to to pick up from from people that's that's something I think that that more people especially in these times really need to, to understand that uh, the people around you that have, have skills and have knowledge, you just need to soak it up. Yeah. Well, it, the, as, just as a player, I would, uh, would go into sessions and, you know, the, the writers bring these charts and, you know, we'd play them and, you know, one session you go in and you go, wow, this is, this is really good. I really like this is good. What's going on here? Why does this sound so good? And I would make an effort to like go into the booth and go, okay, you know, that's how, that's how he voiced it. And, or and that's what he wrote. That's how the rhythms are. The next day you go in and somebody else is writing and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And you go, okay, why do I hate this? Right. Same thing. You learn what doesn't work as well mm -hmm. so just from the playing standpoint i was you know fortunate to play with a lot of really great arrangers and you know kind of learn what they did that made it feel good and then yeah. i got to play with some guys that were it was horrible that it was one it was hard to play and two it didn't sound very good you know mm -hmm. it, it, so you know, I, I had 
I had that opportunity to get it from both sides, just from the playing point. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you this question because this is a, uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to keep things, you know, flowing around, but this, I just have to go this direction. On what are my favorite arrangements that you ever did? Some of the best playing and arranging um, is from the tubes outside inside. There's that three song run with uh, Monkey Time, uh, Wild Women of Wongo, and then uh, Tip of My Tongue. Wild Women of Wongo, the first time I heard that, I just about fell over. The, the horn solely part in there was just so amazing. Where in the world did that come from? Uh, so, well, it's, you know, it's Wild Women of Wongo, so kind of anything goes. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. So we got the elephant sound on the Wild Women of Wongo. Yeah. So that's yeah. Charles Finley's playing trombone on that. Uh, and, and that was just a ferocious sound, and that particular sound in the studio, it was so loud. It was ridiculous. But the, the solely part, so that the band, except the drums, so it's the groove of the tune is that's the groove of the tune. Okay, so the drums in that section, the rhythm sections of the guitar bass still play drums are playing like that. So it's uh -huh. playing across the 16th notes as triplets. Right. So I went with that. You got to go with the drums. So you got to go with the drums. So we had this tune in Sea Wind that was, had this crazy, um, not melody, the horn solo part that was sort of why I went there. And it's sort of a Frank Zappa moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I just did it and Foster, they all, they all loved it. So yeah. that's kind of crazy. You know, we did some, there's some half, like a, a half speed thing in there and some back and forth. Right. So, yeah, but you know, it took us, it took 10 minutes kind of just to do that as well. Yes. Uh, man, that, yeah, it, it just, it stands out. Whenever I talk to someone that's not a horn player and uh, they want some examples of what you do, that's usually one of them I pull out. Either that, either, either something off of that or obviously some of the stuff from uh, uh, Jero, which are, man, it's just absolutely some of my favorite stuff. Actually, when uh, Wayne and I first met, uh we were having a conversation over a beer about our mutual love for the the work that that you and and chuck and and uh gary did on the jero albums and you know it's like oh my god you had that lick off of imagination ah high crime so yeah it, it's it's definitely some some funky 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 stuff <laughs> so thank you, thank you. yeah we I, we uh we bled on that one. <laughs> I'm sure you did. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up 
in just a moment. But uh, what I do first, I've got a, uh, the last thing I always do is a speed round. So I'm going to throw some questions at you. And I just want you to give me the shortest, quickest answer you can. They're going to be all over the place. So if you don't mind, we're going to do a little speed studies, Jerry. Um, what's your favorite book? Anything about World War II. Okay. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Wow. Not what's the worst one you've ever scored. What's the worst one you've ever seen? Uh, uh, yeah, there might have been this one called Hot to Trot. That's That sounds, sounds like uh, something with a wiki-wiki soundtrack on it. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to do right now? Um. I sort of wanted to be a pro bowler for a while. I bowled a lot in grade school and high school and was pretty good. Nowhere near what these guys are doing these days, but that was that was a kind of a thought. Okay. Uh, I think I might know the answer to this. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Uh, burgundy wine, white wine, maybe white burgundy, maybe red. I don't know. It's close, but burgundy. Okay. Uh, you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people. Who would they be? Living people. Quincy. Uh, Maybe magic. Uh, One more. Uh, oh, hmm. I don't have a third. Uh oh. Okay. Well, I guess I'll just crash the dinner then. <laughs> All right. Uh, same thing, but any three people from the past, any any three people that are no longer with us. Bach. Uh, Mr. Adam. Uh, um, uh, whew, I don't know. Uh, uh, Hitler, <laughs> just to kind of mix yeah. things up a little yeah. bit. Uh, oh, God. I, I might serve him a little poison now. Yeah, there you go. I think, what the hell were you thinking, guy? Um, so, uh, I'm going to skip this one. Uh, what's your favorite quote? Oh, God. Wow. I guess, uh, well, the one, the Quincy one, you know, your music is only as good as you are a person. That's one of them. Uh, do one to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are <laughs> that, that that sums it up, actually. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Well, recently, after all the cancer stuff, is you know how you know how much you know mortality rate. You know, I have a, a nine-month-old granddaughter now, and what. You know, what, what am I going to get to see her do? You know, that's, I don't know if it's fear, but just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's something that concerns you and, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you could only have one superpower, what would it be? Um, reading other people's minds, maybe. Ooh, boy, I could get to a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? High notes. Period. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated? Sound. Hmm. So those were easy for you, man. You're just like, boom, right on that. Uh, you could go back in time, visit yourself uh, in earlier state, and uh, give yourself one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Uh, practice piano. All right. Um, same thing. You're going to go back and give yourself one piece of advice, but this is time. It's just about life in general. Uh, hmm. I'm pretty good on that one. I, I you know, I've, uh, I don't know. I'm a blank on that one. <laughs> Well, that, that's, that's okay, man, because, uh, you know, you've, you've lived a, a full life. You've made a lot of tremendous contributions. Uh, you've influenced the lives of a lot of people. And I'm just, you know, even speaking for myself, uh, there, I've had three big influences on the trumpet. Uh, the first one was Herb Alpert. Uh, yeah, because it was just cool, you know? He, you know, Herb's not a great trumpet player. But you hear one note of Herb Alpert, you know who it is. Yeah, it was the Tijuana Bass. So it had a Tijuana Brass play-along book. It was all very cool. Second one, like many trumpet players, Maynard Ferguson. Uh, but the, the third and probably the most impactful in terms of uh, how I've approached music and, and uh, how I, I look at music has been you. So I really appreciate this this time. Uh, and, you know, Again, you've, you've made a, a huge impact on so many lives. Uh, music is such a, a wonderful tool. Uh, and times like this, when uh, things are just a little bit crazy, uh, I think we can all come together uh, under music. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of healing to be done in that. So uh, I want to thank you for your contribution and for, for making music so much enjoyable for, for all oh, of us. Thank you. Very nice of you. Thank you. All right. So uh, I know you need to get going and uh, I need to get going. So uh, I once again, thanks so much, Jerry. And I look forward to uh, talking to you again more in the future. Maybe you and me and Quincy and uh, Magic will sit down and have dinner one night. If you bring the right bottle of wine, I can hook you up with Quincy. <laughs> oh, well, well I'll, you, you tell me the wine and I will find it. <laughs> All right. So thanks again, Jerry. And for everybody that's been out there listening to us, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And peace and slide grease. We are out. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor 
and all other music comes courtesy of the greatest funeral ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound, and I'll see you at the next hang.